Welcome to One on One. This Legislative Services Agency audio program consists of interviews conducted by a member of the agency. Each brief conversational interview features an expert answering questions concerning a topic of interest within an Iowa State agency. On Tuesday, November 3rd, 2015, Glenn Dickinson, Director of the Legislative Services Agency, interviewed Dennis Prouty, former Director of the Legislative Fiscal Bureau and former Director of the Legislative Services Agency. Dennis talked about his long career within the legislative branch of government before retiring in 2008. I'm Glenn Dickinson with the Legislative Services Agency. I'm here today with Dennis Prouty, who's the former director of the Legislative Fiscal Bureau and the Legislative Services Agency, and we're going to talk a little bit about the history of the organization and how Dennis became involved. Could you tell us about your background and how you came to work for the Legislative Fiscal Bureau? I came to work in 1972 and became the fifth employee of the Fiscal Bureau. My background was that I'd worked for Asgro Seed Company a little bit right out of school and I went to Drake University and I came over here as the fifth person. At that point in time the legislature and the governor relied on the governor's budget numbers. The legislature didn't have any staff at all. No caucus staff, no fiscal bureau staff. They did have staff for the service bureau to draft the bills. And they decided to come up with a fiscal bureau to do the budget analysis at that time. And so we did that. We broke the budget up. Prior to computers, we typed everything or we gave them handwritten statements for the information that we provided for them. Along in probably 1980, the legislature decided that they wanted to get into program budgeting or on the national level it was called sunset. And so convinced the legislature at that time it was better to look at the budgets up front rather than auditing after the money had gone out the door and was working on that. And so we added staff and we worked on the budgets at that time. All along, the subcommittees kept growing. Started off with five. I think when I left, we were up to eight, possibly nine, was the highest that it ever got. And we provided financial information. We provided economic impact statements or fiscal notes that everybody was used to, and we got involved in the Revenue Estimating Conference. In 1972, who was the director at that time? Jerry Rankin was the director and had one secretary, and the rest of us did analytical work. And so how long had the Fiscal Bureau been in existence prior to 1972? It started in 1967, and it was, I believe, two people at that time and for some reason there was a political issue and it, they closed it down and then they restarted it. In 1972, was it biennial budgets at that time? Yes, it was biennial budgets at that time and the budget was small enough that we had dollars and cents in the budget bills. At the beginning when I started it was biennial budgeting but they did it by year and they could carry the first year over into the second year uh, without legislative approval. 
And then the legislature decided to make the budget on an annual basis, and so we went to annual budgeting. They never could get the code changed at that time to require annual budgeting, so the governor would submit it on a biennial basis and we'd just do one year at a time. From 1972 and into the 80s, when did you become director? It was 1976 or 77. When Jerry Rankin left? Yes. Also during that time, I know the Fiscal Bureau was involved in program evaluation a little bit. Could you talk about what the involvement was in program evaluation from your perspective, how that went? We started in program evaluation, started a separate unit for that within the Fiscal Bureau, and we continued to look at questions, and they were for a new section in the office. The questions were too broad. We didn't have the staff to go out and dig into the budgets or the actions of the agency, for instance, like Department of Human Services. We just didn't have the staff to do that. So finally we refined it down to a specific question within the Department of Human Services. That was well received, took a long time in getting the reports uh, just from the sheer paperwork, and many times the legislator or committees that asked the questions had forgotten what the questions was by the time we got the answer. And so it kind of fell on hard times because we couldn't produce enough in a timely fashion. So during the 1980s, I know there was a, also quite a shift from paper-based to computers. Can you talk a little bit about what was involved in that and some of what was driving that in terms of budget information from the executive branch? When the Department of Management was providing the budget information to us and with a stack of papers that would never end, but we didn't have any way to resort it, recategorize it, that type of thing. So we got a small computer, one terminal, to try to get a handle on the tracking of the appropriations as it went through the legislative process. And at the same time, we were trying to make efforts, inroads, into the executive branch budget so that we could do something with it besides just shuffle the paper and, and try to get some analysis done on that. And as you might well imagine, the executive branch was not real excited about giving us that access to that information so that we could massage it. And so year after year, we kept trying and we eventually got there. Talk a little bit about then what led up to the creation of the Legislative Services Agency. Most of the time, up until 2000, we had three separate agencies for the legislature. The Fiscal Bureau, the Service Bureau was the one that drafted the bills and did legal research, and the third agency was the Computer Support Bureau for the legislature. Along the way, we decided as a legislative branch that we needed to have computer services not only for legislators to use, but for bill drafting, for fiscal analysis, and at the time when we started the agency, we had to jump in with both feet and try to get 
the legislator some kind of service such as email, access to the internet, that type of thing. And it was a growing process. So those three agencies were done operating within the legislative branch and in roughly, I don't remember the year for sure, they created the Legislative Services Agency that was a combination of the three and they put them under one head because they thought they would get more unified information and rather than having to go to three different people to get a question asked, they could just ask the question of one person. In 2001, they probably organized that way. In 2002, we actually passed the legislation to create the single entity. You served as director from that 2001 period to 2008. Could you talk a little bit about how you were able to blend those three organizations together and what, if any, advantages or disadvantages you saw? Well, in the blending of it, we had three separate agencies that did their own thing. They had a charge and they talked to various legislators. And we appointed towards trying to get a unified agency so that they could go to a one-stop shopping place. And the one thing that I encouraged all the employees to do, as I did in the Fiscal Bureau, if you don't know the answer, tell them that you'll get back to them and make sure that you follow up with that answer. Many times, uh, legislators felt like they were talking to Agency A and they should have been talking to B, but it never got there. And so they kind of went on. And so the three units were well established and functioning, but we tried to get them to act for the legislative branch of government. Right. One of the things that's always been emphasized about the nonpartisan agencies is that fact that they're nonpartisan. How did you keep that as one of the hallmarks of the agency? In the late 70s, early 80s, each of the caucuses started developing their own staff. And so in the process of developing their own staff, we directed them to do the constituency, to do the political side, and we would do the nonpartisan side. And as long as that happened and continues to happen, it's my feeling that the Legislative Services Agency has a function for both parties and both houses. During that consolidation, I had several legislators wondering what I was talking to the other party about. And I would say, would you want me to tell them what I talked to you about? And we would go on, and I think that we've maintained our nonpartisanship, and it provides a very good function for the legislature. So also, while you were director, developed both the rainy day funds, the expenditure limitation, and the revenue estimating conference, things that are still in place today, and I think everybody agrees work pretty well. Could you talk a little bit about how that came about and your involvement? Those particular things were developed because when the budget was submitted by the governor for his budget recommendation, we were charged at the same time to come up with a revenue estimate on how much they could spend. And we spent more time arguing about whose estimate was right or whose was wrong, and 
we got general consensus that they're both wrong because they're an estimate. <laughs> and so there was this tendency to always take the higher of the estimates because they'd have more funds available to utilize. And along the way, there was some serious consequences of getting burnt because we didn't have all that money that we were supposed to have. And so they got together and developed a revenue estimating conference and set the wheels in motion for that. And for the appointment, the governor has one appointment, the legislature has one appointment, and a third independent party. And we had the third independent party, depending upon who it was, took an interest in trying to come up with something. And turned out to be more of a compromise or uh, middle ground, I should say, for the Revenue Estimating Conference. But I think it was necessary, and I think it's been functioning the way it should be, and hope that it continues to. I know you were involved with both NCSL and the sub-organization, the Western States Fiscal Officers, so you've seen other peer organizations. How would you rank this organization compared to those? In NCSL provides a valuable service to the legislature in a nonpartisan way. And I think that it's essential that you continue that. In attending the national meetings, in attending the Western States fiscal officers, you would find out how various other states and their agencies tackle a problem or provide service. And I think that we gained a lot of information in many of the issues we were leading the way in some of the things that we had done. But you can always learn from what other states are doing. And so I think it's a valuable service that we did. Just as a side note, one of the things when I'd go to Western Fiscal Officers, they'd all talk about how much they were spending for forest fires. Well, that didn't mean anything to me at that time. And here we've had all these fires, and we'd spend a good portion of a day talking about how do you budget for a forest fire. And all the Western states, yeah, I do this or we do that and type of thing. And it was kind of, at that time, kind of aside from something that we didn't have to worry about. But you take that and you convert it to snow removal, for example, which they didn't have to worry about, you gain a lot of knowledge and information on how other states are doing things. Mm -hmm. You started in 1972 and you retired in 2008, so that's 36 years. What changes did you see in the legislature over that time, just in terms of how the legislature operated? Maybe operational things, maybe social things? Well, quite obviously in 1972 there wasn't any computers to be had, either for fiscal analysis or for legislators for the internet type thing. And so that has been a big change. And as it's progressed, I think the Legislative Services Agency has tried to stay out in front of the curve on the information that we can provide and in order to help 
legislators make a good decision in what they're doing. From the changes that I've seen in the legislature, uh, been through several reapportionments, so there's a lot of faces that change. And at one time there was several moves that we ought to have term limits. But as I remember, at that particular time, there's like 30% turnover in the legislature anyway, just natural turnover. And so I didn't think that we should have term limits, and I'm glad that we don't, but that's probably one of the things that didn't happen. Sunset legislation was another thing where legislatures would take an agency and terminate them in six years and you'd have to go through an evaluation to see whether you should renew them or not. And that took a hold in some states, and in some of the states that did that, they have since quit doing that. So there's been progress. It's been a lot of growing pains, and but I think they've all been for the better, what we've come up with. You mentioned that computerization is one aspect of quite a change since your beginning and then your ending. How were you able to convince legislators to provide resources to keep up with technology? In an overall sense, just as an example, when I first started preparing a budget analysis and we would, just before the session started, we'd bring in, I don't know, five to ten different clerks and secretaries just to type the forms. And by the time they got them to type them, they were out of date. And so I'd always approach the powers to be in the legislature and say, here's what we're doing now, and here's how I want to improve it. The improvements is for you. It's for your knowledge and your speaking points and your decision-making that we did that. And they were usually very receptive to the things that we did and the improvements that we made. And along with that would come, once an improvement's made, they'd want to go the next step on doing something else to improve something for them, which is fine, and I think that's good, because they don't have full-time staff for each legislator, and so if they can utilize the computer to help them out or have caucus staff help them out or the Legislative Services Agency help them out, they've always been very receptive to it. You talked a little bit about office space in the Capitol and where, where you've been located. Office space in the Capitol is at a premium, not only for legislators but for a staff. As you know, legislators that aren't on a committee or have a committee structure or a committee chair, their office space is on the floor of the chamber, which is one two-drawer file cabinet and a chair and a phone. And now it's a computer to go with it. And they've stayed that way. Over the years, we've tried to put additions onto the Capitol to provide that. Several proposals was to go out west and bury part of it. Well, there was a proposal to go out east and bury it. And 
they were always afraid of the political questions that would be raised by their constituents. The executive branch was never in favor of more space for legislators because they thought they'd spend more time here. And so with the premium there and the legislators making the decisions on who should be in the Capitol and who shouldn't be, we've survived at one time when the Fiscal Bureau was small, we were all in the Capitol. The Service Bureau was in the Capitol, and we didn't have any computer support bureau at that time, and so we didn't have to worry about that. As time has gone by, the caucus staffs have grown, because when I first started here, there wasn't a caucus staff anywhere. And so they want to have them at their hand, and with more services being requested from the Fiscal Bureau, the Service Bureau, and the Computer Support Bureau, we had to find space outside the Capitol building. And one of the hesitancies, or I thought hindrance, to the service agency was that being outside the Capitol, many times legislators wouldn't call over here to the Miller building to get the information, and then they'd either forget it or say it was not worth the trouble of somebody walking over there. So I think it would have been better to put the addition underground over there mm -hmm. and so that you're all in the same building and you just take an elevator ride and be done with it. I think that the Legislative Services Agency has taken third priority for space in the Capitol building just because that's the way it's been. And the space has been, as I said, at a premium. It's not very good space in the current Capitol building because it's all chopped up and that type of thing. But the legislators were never able to bite the bullet and, and do something for themselves. Well, and you saw the change in the Capitol during the renovation from the old office space that was double-decked and right. a fire hazard all the way to a little more functional offices. Well, plus it was not handicapped accessible. Some of those areas weren't. And uh, luckily we never got in a situation where we needed to have handicap accessible for staff. Legislators realized a need for space, but they weren't willing to spend the money for their own employees afraid of being criticized. Well, they also were reluctant to move the auditor and the treasurer and the secretary of state out. So there were some legislators that were involved in the renovation. Senator Jensen is probably one that comes to mind. Senator John Jensen and uh, Representative Chuck Gipp were the two latest ones that were involved in the questions and trying to work out a compromise. Also in the expansion of staff, the Secretary of Senate and the Chief Clerk of the House, with all the increased volume of business, they've had to increase their staff within a short amount of space that they've had to deal with. During that time when space was an issue, you were involved, I think, perhaps with Representative Gipp in getting a tunnel built and getting office space than in the old Babcock building. Correct. So how did that happen? Well, they kept wanting more services, and I said, 
Chuck, we don't have any place to put it. So what are you going to do? So then they started looking around and came up with, we got, I don't remember, one or two floors, half of floors in the Ola Babcock building. And then they kept adding more services, wanting more information, and we had to put those people somewhere, so we just continued to do this. At the time we started, they had indicated that we would have a conference room over here so that the legislators could have meetings over here. And very few, if any, meetings were ever held over here because the legislators wouldn't leave the Capitol building. But you did also extend the tunnel system to get a tunnel built to the Capitol that facilitated easy access during the winter. Yeah, that's how we get there. Part of that tunnel to this day, as far as I know, needs to be replaced. It needs some serious work done on it, and I don't think that enough attention's been paid for improving that tunnel if we're going to utilize Miller Building to make it safe and for travel. Mm -hmm.